Hello and welcome to the Respiratory Exchange Podcast. I'm your host, Traed Wake, Chairman of the Respiratory Institute at Cleveland Clinic. This podcast is intended for healthcare providers and covers topics related to respiratory health and disease. My colleagues and I would be interviewing experts about timeless and timely topics in the areas of pulmonary, critical care, allergy, sleep, and infectious disease. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Respiratory Exchange Podcast. I'm your host, Raid Dwake, Chairman of the Respiratory Institute at the Cleveland Clinic, and my guest today is Dr. Daniel Culver, who is the Chairman of Pulmonary in the Respiratory Institute at Cleveland Clinic. Welcome, Dan. Thank you. Our topic today is going to be talking about interstitial lung diseases, and uh, that's really a wide range of diseases, so hopefully we'll try to at least cover the, the broad strokes of the topic as we talk about. So as this is directed to our physicians, let me start by talking about the classification of interstitial lung diseases. That's always something that's evolving and top of mind. Tell us what's the latest in the classification. Thank you for that. The classification of interstitial lung diseases is undergoing a paradigm shift right in front of our eyes. Previously, we thought about these as very discrete entities, and depending on how you classify them, you can construct them into more than 200 different entities or around 50 entities. But these really have been based on uh, our experiences with what we see on histopathology and to a degree on imaging. More recently, with some emerging clinical trial data and some emerging observations in the clinical research arena, we've started to recognize that classifying these based on behavior and based on disease patterns may be more appropriate. And so the lumpers right now are ascendant and the splitters are actually uh, less popular. And so the classification now, I think, will continue to undergo evolution. The way that I think about it is that there may be various ways to start off interstitial lung diseases, but there are final common pathways or shared pathogenetic mechanisms that really mean that the clinical approach to these is convergent rather than divergent. All right, that's good to know. I guess this is the cycle repeats itself periodically, I guess. So uh, does, does that have anything to do with the way we make the diagnosis now? Now there are genetic markers, you know, you know, historically we used to do, you know, recommend open lung biopsy for all of these, but now there's also cryobiopsy through bronchoscopy. How has that really changed the field? The etiology uh, remains important, of course. There are exposures there are autoimmune diseases, there are other entities uh, like drug-induced interstitial lung disease that are very important to recognize. So the history and basic serologic testing and physical exam remain foundational for diagnosing interstitial lung disease and for really prognostication and management of interstitial lung disease. However, with the recognition that many of the interstitial lung diseases can be broadly classified into non-fibrotic or predominantly fibrotic diseases, the management of the diseases uh, really has been somewhat simplified. I don't think that this means we shouldn't go through the exercise of trying to make a diagnosis, but the need to really pin things down to a very precise level by taking a high proportion of people all the way to surgical lung biopsy may not be quite as much as it used to be. Wow, that, because that was a big deal in you know, going through, especially for sick people who are, 
you know, uh, in, in lung uh, fibrosis and needing oxygen, etc. So it's always like a decision. Do they need lung biopsy? Do they not? And we we kind of agonize over it. So I think it's good to know that there are some ways around that. Tell us a little bit more about the cryo-lung biopsy. This has been very popular, at least a lot of talk about it lately. And how, what does it fit in the armamentarium of the diagnosis of uh, ILD? So transbronchial cryobiopsy, which involves putting a probe uh, into the periphery of the lung, freezing the probe for a duration of several seconds, and then removing the, the piece of lung, just like removing a little piece of a popsicle, has really become uh, quite popular over the past few years. And I think the reason for the popularity is twofold. One is that the technology has really evolved and the, the, the practice of it has really become more standardized. And secondly, there's been a growing recognition of the risks of surgical biopsy. And especially when surgical biopsy is done in an emergent or an urgent uh, a way, for example, in a patient admitted to the hospital, the risks of that for exacerbation or for mortality are not insignificant. Transbronchial cryobiopsy can provide a good bit more tissue than transbronchial biopsy, conventional transbronchial biopsy does. And it, it is not quite as good as surgical biopsy at making a pathologic diagnosis, but when it's combined with a multidisciplinary discussion, which has really become the standard for diagnosing complex ILD, the degree of confidence if transbronchial cryobiopsy is very similar to that for surgical biopsy. The best study in this area is called Cold Ice. This was a multi-center study that was conducted in Australia and reported about two years ago now. And that compared transbronchial cryobiopsy and surgical biopsy in the same set of patients. And they found that the concordance was good pathologically, but after subjecting the patients to MDD, the investigators found that for people with a high degree or a definite diagnosis on MDD, that the concordance was very high between blind allocation to transbronchial cryobiopsy as part of MDD versus surgical biopsy as part of MDD. Yeah, you mentioned MDD, this multidisciplinary discussion, and I'm going to come back to that. I think hopefully we'll spend a few minutes talking about it. But before that, I'm going to focus on this, what methods we use to diagnose and make the classification of the disease. Like you, um, you talked about genomic uh, classifiers. How do those fit in the, in the diagnostic picture? So genomic classifier is another technology that's really emerged in the past several years. This is really looking at gene expression in transbronchial biopsy samples. We've conventionally thought that transbronchial biopsy is inadequate for a tissue level diagnosis, but of course looking at gene expression with a set of genes looking for a pattern, the genomic classifier is able with a very good degree of specificity, around 90% specificity, to make a call of usual interstitial pneumonia. As you know, UIP does not necessarily mean that you have IPF. There can be other causes of UIP. But the way that the classifier that's currently in use has been set up is to really prioritize specificity. So a positive classifier for UIP can give you a good bit of confidence that you actually are dealing with UIP. In a patient where you come in with an uncertain pretest probability, the genomic classifier can really tilt the needle and allow you to make a confident diagnosis of something like IPF uh, without a more advanced diagnostic technique. Wow, that's uh, really great. So now with genomic classifiers and transbronchial uh, lung cryobiopsy, is there still a role for the open lung biopsy? Is there a time where this is the time when you need it, or is it, uh, is it gone? 
Well, I think surgical lung biopsy uh, has been a bit of a pariah and maybe a little bit overly so. In patients who are stable, who have relatively preserved or only moderately impaired lung function, there are data suggesting that the risks of surgical lung biopsy are not tremendously high. They're certainly less than 5% for important events. We have our own internal data suggesting the same thing. And for people who have some diagnostic uncertainty after transbronchial lung cryobiopsy, there is a role for surgical lung biopsy. I also think that in centers that don't do transbronchial lung cryobiopsy, that surgical lung biopsy should indeed be part of the armamentarium. I think it's important to remember that about 20% of people with interstitial lung disease have what's so-called unclassifiable ILD, and that's a diagnosis that I think is very difficult to make without adequate tissue. So if you have a patient after MDD where there's still a good degree of diagnostic uncertainty, and especially if you're trying to diagnose something that's very rare like idiopathic NSIP, there's a recent Belgian series suggesting that going forward with a surgical lung biopsy actually has a good chance of reversing that diagnosis. Well, that's great. Thank you so much for that uh, update. Now, before we uh, move on to treatment, I want to come back to something you mentioned a few times, which is the multidisciplinary discussion, this MDD and its role in making a diagnosis. Can you tell us about how that works and maybe your experience at the Cleveland Clinic in building this team and how it works? Sure. The multidisciplinary discussion has really become the gold standard for diagnosing and to some degree for difficult management questions in interstitial lung disease. The core group of members in MDD is at least one clinician, one radiologist, and one pathologist with experience in interstitial lung disease. Many MDDs also incorporate other team members like rheumatologists, transplant physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, and whatnot. But the core members should be people with experience in ILD in those first three specialties I mentioned. And the idea is that there's an open discussion between the specialties around the clinical characteristics of the patient. This is done in our center and many other centers before any invasive diagnostic test and then repeated after an invasive diagnostic test The data so far for MDD do show that getting everybody together in a room and discussing increases the chance of diagnostic agreement. That's not surprising. And there's at least one study that suggests that it does increase the prognostic stratification of patients to classify people by MDD versus just a lone individual out there doing it themselves. So do you have a standard approach how you kind of review these cases or it's just an open discussion or how does it work? Different MDDs have different approaches. In our center, we have a relatively standard template. So there's a presentation by a clinician, a discussion about the most likely diagnosis. We rank those according to certainty. So there can be definite provisional with high confidence, provisional with low confidence or uncertain. And then the radiologist presents their part of it. There's a further discussion. And finally, if there's pathology, that's the part that happens at the end. And then finally, a discussion again. We don't bring, and many other centers also don't bring every interstitial lung disease case to the MDD uh, because it would simply take too much time. So in general, most centers reserve these for the more challenging cases. 
Yeah, of course. And, and more opinions and more heads, I guess, are better than one when it comes to these complex cases. So uh, thank you. The, let's move on to treatment now. And there are several options for treatment for these uh, interstitial lung diseases. And I uh, maybe you can start. Do you want to start with antifibrotics or immunosuppressants? Which one do you want to take on first? Well, we could start with immune suppressants because that's, that's I guess, the historical, the historical trajectory of yeah, this. Go for it. Yeah. So historically, we thought that pulmonary fibrosis was really driven by repeated injury characterized as inflammation and that by blocking inflammation, we could prevent progression of fibrosis. And of course, inflammation is one pathway that can lead to fibrosis, but that we know that the pathogenesis of many forms of pulmonary fibrosis is not dependent on inflammation and that it may have a minor role in some forms like in IPF. So historically, we treated patients with these diseases with agents like prednisone or azathioprine. And I think a study that really revolutionized our thinking and confirmed observational data was the PANTHER trial, which suggested that treatment with prednisone and azathioprine actually increased the mortality in patients with IPF didn't help people. And around that time also, there was the development of antifibrotics. So for people with predominantly fibrotic lung disease that's not driven by inflammation, we really shy away from using immunosuppressives in those people. Of course, there are some people with a mixture of both, and that remains an area of controversy. What immunosuppressives do you use most commonly in these patients when you use them? I think that corticosteroids remain an important piece of the armamentarium. They're cheap. They're simple to use. We have broad experience with them. They're fairly reliable, and they act quickly. Another immunosuppressant that's very widely used is mycophenolate mofetil. That has some antifibrotic properties as well as being quite a good immunosuppressant. Those are probably the two leading ones. Azathioprine is used in a number of centers, and rituximab, I think, is emerging for certain interstitial lung diseases as an important piece of the uh, puzzle. Great. Let's move on now to antifibrotic therapy, which is kind of the latest thing, I guess, in interstitial lung diseases. Can you give us a little bit of background about how these medications work and how have they became kind of the mainstay in the treatment of interstitial lung diseases? Sure. There are, there are two uh, approved antifibrotic therapies right now, perfenidone and nintedinib. Both of these are what I would term dirty therapies. So they do a lot of different things. And the exact mechanism in pulmonary fibrosis is not entirely clear. Perfenidone has anti-inflammatory properties as well. And it has a number of properties that inhibit fibroblast activation, synthesis of collagen, downstream molecules like TGF-beta. Nintedinib uh, blocks tyrosine kinases. Uh, specifically, it inhibits uh, elaboration of PDGF, FGF, and VEGF. And so these are all molecules that are important in fibrosis. So nintedinib probably is a little bit more clear. Both of these drugs have been shown in multiple trials to decrease the rate of decline in forced vital capacity, which right now is still considered the gold standard surrogate marker for mortality and for patient-centered endpoints in pulmonary fibrosis. And roughly, they both block the decline in FVC on average by around 50%, and probably also decrease the chance of acute exacerbations by around 50%. You mentioned patient-centered outcomes. I think this is very critical these days. So we, we are used to looking at objective data from our standpoint as physicians. How uh, are you looking at patient-centered outcomes in, in these treatments now? What, are th what things do you look for? 
So uh, for the antifibrotic therapies, the evidence on patient-centered outcomes as it relates to PROs has been pretty mixed. And in fact, these have some, some significant side effects. And so one of the things when you start one of these agents is really framing expectations, that we're looking to do things that are important but won't make you feel better tomorrow. Things like preventing hospitalization, preventing functional deterioration, preventing death, preventing acute exacerbations. If you ask about things like, am I making a big difference on PROs? Again, those have been fairly mixed. There are some non-specific PROs that have been looked at. There are some more specific PROs that have been looked at. And in various studies, there are some signals that these are beneficial, but these were not what the primary registration trials were powered to do. And in fact, the signals are a bit mixed. And I've seen uh, some of these patients in another context in, uh, when they have comorbidities like pulmonary hypertension is a common one. So, you know, can you tell us about the role of you know, pulmonary hypertension in the uh, outcomes, but also the treatment of, of these patients? Pulmonary hypertension is fairly prevalent in interstitial lung diseases, especially, of course, in patients with connective tissue disease. Uh, there are patients who primarily have uh, more of a vascular disease than an interstitial disease, uh, as you well know from patients, for example, with scleroderma who may have WHO group 1 pH type of phenotype. But many of these patients with advanced parenchymal disease have more of a group 3 type uh, uh, pattern, and we haven't known what to do for those for quite a while. And a number of trials looking at endothelial receptor antagonists or medications like sildenafil haven't found benefits in, in pulmonary fibrosis. There is a more recent trial using a troprostanil, inhaled troprostanil four times a day, called the INCREASE trial, that found a modest improvement in the six-minute walk test over a 16-week period. I think the difference was around 31 meters between treatment and placebo. And interestingly, also found some improvements in forced vital capacity. And in 16 weeks, how much can you say about FVC? Probably not very much. And this is a subset analysis, and it's a bit exploratory. But there are some biologic reasons to think that there may be some plausible benefit to uh, prostanoids. And so um, there's another trial that's going to be started to look at this in a larger cohort of ILD patients. Yeah, that's great. Because pH is a pulmonary hypertension is a comorbidity in many other diseases, COPD, etc., and that uh, has implications for outcomes uh, for the patients, but also overall uh, outcomes as well. So, other comorbidities, you know, so pH is a common one. Any other comorbidities that affect how you look at these patients, how you treat them, and take care of them? So, patients with interstitial lung diseases, of course, will have comorbidities that depend a lot on which disease is driving their interstitial lung disease. I come back again to connective tissue diseases, which is its whole own set of problems. But if you take the most common ILD, which is idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, there are several comorbidities that are very, very important to manage in the comprehensive care of the patient. Depression is very prevalent. Sleep apnea is very prevalent. And a really important one that also probably has links to pathogenesis is esophageal reflux. And somewhere around 50% or so of patients will have some esophageal reflux. There are observational data suggesting that the presence of esophageal reflux is associated with the almost a twofold increase in the rate of progression or the chance of acute exacerbation. And there are observational data as well suggesting that treatment with PPIs can blunt that rate of progression decline. 
And in fact, there's one interesting study, which was a smallish randomized trial looking at laparoscopic reflux surgery called RAP-IPF. And it's underpowered, but there were strong trends in favor of treatment with surgery for patients with reflux who have IPF. If you look at patients with IPF and do BAL, you can find things like pepsin and bombesin in their BAL fluid. And so there's some plausibility to thinking that recurrent microaspiration, perhaps because the mechanics of the lungs are changed, or perhaps for other reasons, could be damaging the epithelium and could be helping drive uh, the progression of fibrosis. So you mentioned PPIs or proton pump inhibitors uh, for uh, treating reflux. How often do you use uh, these in, uh, in those patients? So the management of patients with reflux and IPF and how intensely to screen is still controversial. Different centers do this differently. Right now, to me, the summation of data suggests that people who have clinically overt reflux should be treated. And I encourage patients to do the lifestyle modifications and to take medical therapy if they have symptomatic reflux. At this point in time, we are not going and looking for occult reflux. But I think that that's still an area that needs to be explored more. Yeah, thank you. That's, well, a lot of information in a short uh, period of time. Thank you for sharing uh, all that uh, knowledge with us. Looking at the future, what's coming down the pike for uh, ILDs or interstitial lung diseases? Can you just take a guess or a look, an informed guess like from somebody like you who has lived this for a while? Well, the future, of course, is difficult to predict, but I think that we can see some of the trends that are emerging and, and estimate what will happen. I think in terms of diagnosis, we're going to move more towards thinking about endotyping and phenotyping and not worrying about putting constructs around disease. And so there will be molecular phenotyping. We'll be looking at things like CT quantitation as both prognostic and perhaps providing uh, ways to think about precision treatments for patients. You never know what you're going to get. So for example, a couple of years ago, there was an interesting study that looked at a variety of CT parameters and found a completely unexpected result that pulmonary vascular volume is a strong predictor of prognosis in interstitial lung disease. We never would have guessed that. So we're going to find markers that we never even thought existed. In terms of therapy, I think this will end up being more like heart failure therapy or maybe like pH therapy that you're so familiar with, uh, where we really attack it from multiple angles. And maybe we combine a dirty drug like profenadone with a very targeted drug like a pentraxin inhibitor, and maybe together those are much more effective than any one single agent. Wonderful. Thank you, Dan. Let me just try to give uh, our audience a couple of um, uh, key points maybe to take away from this. So um, just to uh, summarize, so classifying and diagnosing interstitial lung disease has been evolving and continues to evolve, and now we're more becoming more lumpers than splitters, at least in the current state. The multidisciplinary discussion is really key and critical to making a final or at least the best diagnosis when a patient presents with an interstitial lung disease, and that has become the standard of care and in, in the diagnosis. Treatment has evolved really away from using immunosuppressants and more towards using antifibrotic and sometimes combining them depending on the on the case. And taking care of identifying and taking care of comorbidities is critical to make sure we take good care of these patients. Anything else to I think uh, that's a good synopsis. I will also say that uh, there are data suggesting that earlier referral to a tertiary center with experience in ILD 
a center that has good access or has its own lung transplant program and a lot of experience diagnosing has been associated with better outcomes. So I think that's another cardinal piece of managing these patients. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, Thank you, Dan. And uh, thank you uh, to our audience for joining us today. Again, this is your host, Triad Dwake, chairman of the Respiratory Institute at Cleveland Clinic. And my guest today was Dr. Dan Culver, who is the chairman of the pulmonary uh, department in the Respiratory Institute. And our topic was interstitial lung diseases, diagnosis and management. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Respiratory Exchange. For more stories and information from Cleveland Clinic Respiratory Institute, you can follow us on Twitter at Clee Clinic Lungs or follow me at Triad Dwake MD. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>